are back. I want to talk science, but I also want to refer to some dumb stuff. And unfortunately, we have quite a confluence of those two. With a piece I've been sitting on from The Week magazine, which appeared in the November 20th edition. It's a rather laudatory two-page piece about a man described as a modern-day Edison. The subheadline said, The most prolific inventor in U.S. history got F's in school, said Ashley Vance, and helped bring down the USSR. When I read this piece, I looked down at the picture of Lowell Wood and said to myself, Not the Lowell Wood from Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. I knew a bit about this guy from some of the antics he committed with Edward Teller. And, of course, yeah, it was the same guy. Now, nobody's saying he's not a clever guy. He apparently does have more patents than anybody in U.S. history, Thomas Edison included. But I'm here to tell you he's gotten involved with some stuff that really wasn't very, um, shall we say, legitimate. This briefing does note that in the 1980s, Lowell Wood helped lead the development of the space lasers that were meant to shield the U.S. from Soviet missiles as part of the Star Wars program. He is an astrophysicist, is described as a self-trained paleontologist and computer scientist. Apparently last year, Wood equaled and broke Thomas Edison's record of 1,084 patents. The piece does note that Wood got undergraduate degrees in chemistry and math from UCLA, as well as his doctorate in astrophysics. It was in 1972 that he got a job at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, where he served as a protege of Edward Teller, the theoretical physicist and father of the hydrogen bomb. Wood worked on projects ranging from spacecraft to the use of gamma rays to place hidden watermarks on objects. Then came the Star Wars project. Wood pushed a team of scientists to build a weapon system capable of detecting and destroying Russian intercontinental ballistic missiles in mid-flight. This piece by Ashley Vance does note that historians and journalists haven't been kind to Edward Teller, considered one of the most polarizing figures of the Cold War, and Wood often gets lumped in with him as a fringe science lunatic, especially when it comes to Star Wars, because after all, after billions of dollars and years of controversy, the initiatives never made it out of the lab. Of course, if you were watching the TV news back in the time of the first Gulf War, you would have come away with the impression that our anti-missile tomahawks were able to shoot down the Iraqi scuds. I drove around Sacramento one night in the midst of all that coverage and saw a guy with a panel truck and a huge American flag sticking out the rear with a hand-painted sign on the side that said, Thank you, SDI. The initial claims were that the Scuds had been shot down at a rate of 90%. This was later downgraded to 50%, then 15%. And after all the headlines faded away, it was finally admitted somewhere, you know, in the middle of... (laughs) the reporting, usually on page A10, that um, further studies showed that actually they hadn't shot down any of them. Now, it turned out the whole Star Wars thing has been a giant boondoggle. You can't react quickly enough and have enough power in a space-based weapon system to locate and shoot down an incoming intercontinental ballistic missile. But the piece says that Wood is quick to suggest that he knew all along the system, while technically feasible which is incorrect, but anyway, we'll let it go, while technically feasible, was too complex and expensive to be practical. It was mainly for show, he says, a feint that broke the enemy's morale and treasury. I got the results I wanted, he said. The Soviet Union collapsed. Check, it's done. The evil empire is no more. We again would like to serve up a salty opinion 
on this program that that is BS. The Soviet Union was well on its way toward collapsing for a long time before Reagan's announcement in 83 we were going to build this so-called SDI system. I think the idea that the Soviet Union bankrupted itself by trying to equal the system is ludicrous. They also knew it wouldn't work. Although they did take great pains to point out back in the time that if you did have a laser in space that was powerful enough to fry a missile, what's to stop you from frying a target on the ground, such as, you know, the Soviet premier driving around in a limousine? Anyway, the piece goes on to describe some other work Lowell Wood is evidently attempting to do in regards to treating people that get concussions and some good medical stuff. And, and we wish him well in this endeavor. But we do hope somebody stops him before he gets involved in trying to geoengineer the planet to stop global warming, because we think that's going to work out about as well as the SDI did. All right, and something else we're a little bit dubious about in the way of technology is um, this question of using drones to make deliveries. I'd like to quote a piece by Todd Frankel writing in the Washington Post. He wrote a couple weeks back to say, you've probably heard the delivery drones are coming soon to a backyard near you. Amazon and Google have both released slick promotional videos showing their drones accurately and reliably lowering packages onto customers' doorsteps, and executives suggest that the vehicles will be ready to take flight after government regulators finalize airspace rules later this year. Said Frankel, don't believe it. He says people problems will keep delivery drones grounded for years to come. Drone makers admit they don't have any realistic approach to handling jokesters who might use the flying vehicles for target practice or pets that go into attack mode when drones land in the yard. They've also been noticeably silent on the question of air rights, such as whether an Amazon drone can buzz low over your house to get to your neighbor's door. Then there's the issue of missing infrastructure. Drones will have to contend with unique delivery conditions at every residence. Proposed solutions like 10-foot-tall mailboxes and rooftop delivery lockers are fanciful and show just how much work remains in solving what's known as the problem of the last 50 feet. The machines might be able to fly flawless test runs in areas comically devoid of obstacles, but delivery drones won't take off till people and pets and pranksters stay out of the way. God, we hope he's right. They're doing their level best to put a good spin on drones. The Nature Conservancy got involved, uh, last month, asking tech junkies to capture the flooding and coastal erosion that comes with El Nino. They want to fly drones up and down the coast and use this to document for a good purpose what El Nino has done. Well, one hopes that some good will come out of these devices, but, you know, since some of these things weigh 70 pounds and are, you know, three or 400 feet above your head, well, they're just not the kind of things you want to have lose power and come crashing down on top of you. And as a licensed pilot, I got to say, the idea of flying these things around airports just scares the bejesus out of me. I think we can count on the fact that some idiots are going to. And here's some other technology we find disconcerting. The Economist reported in its November 21st uh, issue from last year that there's a new science and technology of sniping. Now, evidently, to be a good sniper, you have to not only have a good eye and a good hand, you've got to have a lot of technology to help you make all the necessary adjustments for the path of your bullet, including, you know, the rotation of the Earth. Noted the economist, coping with these factors can require complex mathematical calculations, noting that one way to simplify matters would be to make bullets that know where they are going and can change course in mid-flight to get there. And, wouldn't you know it, 
One such bullet has been designed at Sandia National Laboratories. That's uh, Lawrence Livermore's cousin down there in New Mexico. The Economist notes that in one sense, this new bullet takes a step backward. Rifled barrels, which have been, you know, which have helical grooves in them that impart a spin to the bullet, turn muskets from, you know, things useful only when fired in mass into instruments of assassination and basically ushered in the era of the professional sniper. In what's described as a reversion to, to 18th century practice, the new bullet, which has not yet been given a name, is fired from a smooth bore barrel. But it is a pointed projectile, not a musket ball. It's got fins. It's got actuators on board that can change the trim of those fins and an onboard computer to control the actuators. Also an optical sensor in the tip that tells the computer where the target is and a lithium battery to power the whole lot. Now, how do they devise electronics that can uh, survive an acceleration of 120,000 Gs? Well, we sure don't know, but evidently they managed to do it. Is this a technology that's going to make the world a better place? Well, we have our doubts, but we're pretty sure that um, once defense contractors start giving us the bill for these expensive new items, uh, well, well, it ain't going to be cheap. All right, let's talk about some better uses of technology. Um, there's now an effort underway to see if babies can't be inoculated with more beneficial bacteria. It turns out that some epidemiologic studies have suggested that C-section babies may have an elevated risk for developing immune and metabolic disorders, including type 1 diabetes, allergies, asthma, and obesity. One possible reason for this uh, is reflected in our ever-increasing understanding of the microbial flora in our guts, which has a lot to do with how we live. We've talked on this show in the past about how Turns out that certain strains of mice prone to obesity have different bacteria in their guts than leaner mice. And when you basically transplant those bacteria into lean mice, they get fat. Well, we've got a lot to learn about uh, this interaction between we humans and the stuff living in us and on us. And we know for sure that babies that were born via cesarean section, rather than passing through the birth canal, don't get the usual complement of bacteria, which are inside of mom. The science on this is very definitely not yet completely worked out, but we think this holds a great deal of promise for um, making us healthier. We hope this research goes ahead full steam. And some other good news in the bacterial world comes from a piece uh, by Cynthia Graber, which was in the January 2nd issue of New Scientist, talking about how... Uh, Almost every antibiotic known came from just 1% of bacteria out there, and it's high time we got to work on the others. Now, one reason the new data we're getting about, you know, the bugs growing inside of us is so astounding to a lot of people is that, you know, we realized how much we're missing. Previously, if you wanted to know what uh, bacteria were inside somebody, you had to plate it out and grow it on a medium culture. But turns out that an awful lot of bacteria simply simply will not grow on culture media. Modern technology identifies their DNA or RNA fingerprints. Now we know what's there without having to actually grow it. Well, in a similar vein, it's been realized that, you know, if you want to get an antibiotic from a bacteria that comes from, say, the soil, you have to grow it. And therein lies the rub. Peace refers to researchers at the University of California in San Diego, in this case, Karsten Zengler, 
trying to grow microbes in a way that mimics their natural environment. This involves coating droplets of liquid containing individual microbes in a permeable gel. He places the resulting capsules in a solution containing the same ingredients as the microbes' original environment or as best they can do and to mimic it. Now, apparently with these more sophisticated techniques, they're able to culture or at least get some growth out of these bacteria and isolate them. And there remains the possibility that they'll be able to extract useful uh, compounds from bacteria by just looking at the genetic coding directly. This approach is known as metagenomics and is described as offering a way to get a snapshot of the different microbes in a given place and may even provide tools for developing new drugs. This is exciting stuff. And some good people down in New Zealand are working on the microbes inside of cows to see what they can do to minimize, uh, well, the fact that cows are basically belching methane at prodigious rates. And since methane is a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2, and we have a lot of cattle in the world, this is a problem. Now, we referred to a documentary seen by Mr. Merlin and I some weeks back on the full impact that... um, the world's cattle are having on the global climate. And this documentary implied that it may be equal to that of the fossil fuels being burned that we've been unable to verify, but this does merit some uh, further examination. Now, one approach they're referring to is to treat these methanogens, these microbes that are inside the rumens of cattle, with an antibiotic approach. That, That doesn't seem very promising. They may also be able to vaccinate the animals against proteins that help produce the methane and maybe had him off at the pass that way. They're still working on that one. The third approach might be to breed animals with a lower propensity to burp out methane, and that's that's sure to have uh, some success. The fourth approach is to alter what the animals eat. By giving certain foodstuffs that are less likely to produce gas, they can reduce methane emissions by as much as 25%. We're glad that they're working on this, but we have a feeling that um, these results are going to be less than spectacular and that we may just need to cut back the uh, the herds of cattle that we have here uh, grazing on uh, the landscape all over the world. Dang it, we're up against it on time. I have three pieces in front of me on giant viruses, critical thinking, and the last great mysteries of the solar system. I barely have time to do justice to one. All right, let's do a quick run at the critical thinking piece. There's an effort out there titled the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, which is trying to compare student performances around the world. This year, they're focused on the scientific literacy of 15-year-olds from more than 70 states and regions. Now, the article in New Scientist, once again, notes that uh, they're hopeful of some progress here, noting that in 1996, a survey found that more than half of the U.S. population didn't know that the Earth orbits the sun, and few even knew what that might mean. Peace notes that more recent polls suggest that U.S. scientific literacy has improved. Well, God, we hope so. But it notes, even more importantly, that mastery of facts alone is not enough for the Internet age. Much of the copious online rhetoric is more viral than factual. So it is just important that we know how to evaluate sources of information and how to tell correlation from causation and opinion from fact. That's important in matters both obviously scientific and Otherwise, in evaluation of the internet, it notes that, surprise, surprise, you really shouldn't believe every number you read. article quotes somebody from the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin, saying that this is a systematic problem. 
There are a large number of experts, not just lay people, who have no training in statistical thinking. First in question, Gerd Gigerenzer has evidently, evidently written a book titled Risk Savvy, How to Make Good Decisions. He notes that children are taught the mathematics of certainty, algebra, trigonometry, geometry, and the like, noting that that's beautiful but often useless. He notes for a complex and risky world, we need a different kind of preparation. We should be taught uncertainty. First thing to understand is there's no such thing as certainty and that looking for it is an illusion. There are risks everywhere and you need to quantify them. The second thing to do is to look for stats that encapsulate absolute numbers, not relative ones. Citing the example that if you read that popping a pill will reduce the risk of having a stroke by 50%, that relative number doesn't mean very much if you don't know how likely you're to have a stroke in the first place. If the absolute number is 3 in 1,000, a 50% reduction will take it down to 2 in 1,000, which is a rather puny decrease. I mean, the pill might still be worth taking, but you have to look at, you know, what the numbers really mean. Speaking of math illiteracy... Uh, also talk about people's lack of understanding of exponential growth. Surely another great shortfall of our system of teaching math, or rather not teaching math in this country. The section on this quotes the late Albert Bartlett, described as a physicist at the University of Colorado in Boulder, who said the greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. The magazine then gives examples of how much money you'll save if you start when you're 18 versus a decade later. And of course, it's a huge difference when you don't have that many more years of exponential numbers working for you. We talked about this question of compounding interest on this program uh, last year. We probably should do it again. Anyway, the piece goes on to talk about game theory, talk about things you need to know regarding uh, greenwashing. And also probability. They note that coincidences are more common than you think. And before we close, I do have to cite one example from this. If you ask somebody, what are the odds you're at a party? There's 23 people there. Um, what are the chances that two people share a birthday? Now, if you follow the reasoning that, well, there's one person there and there's 22 other people there, what are the odds in a 365-day year that someone else has the same birthday? Well, you pretty low. In fact, the odds are better than 50-50. And no, we're running short in time, so I don't have time to explain it. But, you know, hit up your local mathematicians. See if they can do something useful. Huh, so much material, so little time. I think uh, we're going to bring it to a close here and have a little fun in our third segment. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. The science we didn't get to today, we'll try and get to later. In the meantime, let's, uh, let's have a little fun in segment three. <laughs> 